Designcast Podcast, the podcast for design and STEAM educators. Hello and welcome to Designcast, a podcast where I interview a wide range of excellent guests in design and STEAM education to get their unique perspectives. My name is Jason Reagan and I use my 20 plus years of experience as a design educator to dig deep into complex issues. This podcast has one simple mission, to create a community of people around the world that are interested in design and STEAM education. Each episode, I chat with guests from all corners of the design world, from classroom teachers to authors and even to educational consultants. We discuss a wide range of topics that we feel are relevant today. I do want to ask you that if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review, rate, subscribe, share, or download from your favorite podcasting app. This helps the podcast get discovered by listeners that might not find it otherwise. Also, it helps me to continually define the direction of future guests and episodes. Feel free to drop by my website, www.jasonreagan.ga, to leave me a comment or to sign up to be considered as a future guest on future episodes. Also, don't forget to stop by Anchor and leave me a voice clip that could even end up in an upcoming show. Thanks for listening. So let's get to it. On this episode of DesignCast, I had the pleasure of speaking with my old friend and former colleague, Dr. Kevin House. Kevin is the Director of Education at SE21, which is a Dulwich College International Initiative. We chat about his unconventional journey into education and all that he has accomplished in his career. It is a really great chat with him about the ethos and vision for SE21. I am confident that you will enjoy this discussion. Now, don't forget to check out the Goodreads bookshelf for this podcast listed in the link tree link that is listed in the description of the podcast. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this chat with Dr. Kevin House. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Design Cast, and I'm absolutely just so excited to have Dr. Kevin House with me today. Kevin, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat, Jason. It's great to catch up. It is great to catch up, and I am um, so excited to talk to you, Kevin, and hear about all the things you've been doing. And so, Kevin, if you don't mind, can you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and, and what got you into education? So... How long, how long is the podcast? No. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll kick off by telling my journey from the very start, in a sense. The reason being, some of the things I'm going to loop back to in, later in the conversation, you'll probably see why I'm driven by certain things in terms of where I want to try and take the future of education and kind of arch, the architecture around what future learning should look like. So I, I grew up in the UK. I'm old enough to have been pre-comprehensive education so for those listeners that can 
know what I'm talking about, they'll know that they in the UK they have grammar schools and secondary modern. They used to do an examination when you're 11, and that determined kind of your, your academic trajectory for the rest of your school career. I failed that exam for a number of reasons, I think, in my life. So I was doing life learning at the time, and the school learning took, took a back seat. So I went into secondary modern. In those days, they said you can probably go into the, into the forces, or you could maybe get an apprenticeship. This is the late 1970s. Or you can be unemployed. And most of the schooling was kind of geared towards setting you up for one of those pathways. So I didn't have a particularly great relationship with education by the time I finished secondary schooling. Went off and did a bunch of other stuff with my life. Did some acting, worked in rock bands and did some construction work and, and various other things. And kind of got to late 20s. And in the UK at that time, you could still get grant-assisted tertiary education. So kind of thought, well, I, I kind of want to do something else than menial labour, which is kind of what I was falling into at that time. So I, I did a degree quite late in life at 26 and then did a, at the end of that, it was kind of an English degree. And then you tended to go into journalism if you had connections or you go into teaching. So then I did some postgrad teaching and very quickly realized that I wanted a change in, in, in my circumstances of living in London. And then I dipped my toe in the water and ended up going overseas. So I got a job with the British Council working in the government schools in Botswana, in the Okavango Delta. Really fantastic, truly life transforming experience. And then from there, spent three years in Africa working in the state education sector there and then came back to the UK to study for a master's. Realised that I enjoyed, in a sense, being a lifelong learner. I enjoy, I enjoy the, the, the rigours and the stimulation through, through learning somewhat later in life. And then went back overseas again, worked in Thailand, worked in Spain, worked in China, which, of course, where you and I caught up with one another. And then from there came to Singapore. And in that time, I worked through that kind of traditional trajectory into educational um, administration leadership. I was principal here of high school in Singapore and then I wanted a change in my career and was the regional head of school services for the International Baccalaureate and then did the transition into Ivy World Schools and managed the international school portfolio globally and then Three years ago, joined Dulwich College International. So that's a group of schools. We have, if you like, a house of brands concept. So we have different types of school. We have Dulwich Colleges, Dulwich High Schools, De Hong International, serving different demographics and different educational provision. And then that's kind of brought me to where I am now. I started an institute for learning and research for Dulwich. And then the last 12 months, I've been working on a specific project, which I'll probably talk to more in a minute. Mm. What a journey, man. I'm tired just listening to you talk about all those places you've been to. You know, I didn't realize you'd done all that other stuff before you went into teaching. How has that life experience helped you in your work as an educator? Yeah. So the reason I spell all of that out is because for those of you that have engaged with, oh gosh, I've forgotten the name now, but the, the chap out of um, the US wrote Life Worthy Learning, the um, David Perkins. So David Perkins in his book talk, talks a lot about how do we perpetuate a re-engagement with education for young people. And I think for me, one of the things I realized after 30 years working in education is it is a highly governed, in many respects, uh, hierarchical for all of our rhetoric around devolved leadership structures. It's a very hierarchical environment. And therefore, it, it, it's overly bureaucratic. And I think that's it's created an educational environment where many of the practitioners 
and this is not this is not criticism of, of teachers it's more a criticism of the system we often find ourselves going through school going to university going to teacher training going back into school and if you like that's that's a kind of institutional conveyor belt in education and one of the things that that does is it, it gives teachers many teachers who follow that, that pathway an incredibly detailed understanding of of academia and the academic life in the broadest sense, but possibly doesn't tap into some of the things that Perkins would call life-worthy learning, which is, if you like, wearing wearing other shoes and being part of uh, different career paths. And, and I often found that colleagues I work with in education who came to education later and had done other things first, I found there was a certain certain level of agility in the way that they looked at things which perhaps was sometimes not necessarily there with, with educators who've gone through through the, the trajectory that I just spelled out. And I think for myself, part of what's kept me both a lifelong learner, but also someone who's interested in looking at what's next, but also looking at what we have and seeing what you can use to disrupt the status quo within education. I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I did a number of different things and wore a number of different hats before I went into education. You know, Kevin, this podcast was born out of the need to help design teachers, and it's kind of broadened its reach over the the past year or so. But almost everyone I've talked to, design teacher or not, has a very similar path or journey that you've just described. Some people have gone straight into teaching, and then a lot of them have had other lives, so to speak, you know, other careers, which... I think helps to ground them, like you were saying, these work experiences, world experiences. It grounds them so that they have a very different perspective and a bit more, I don't even want to call it patience, but a different level of tolerance when it comes to dealing with students and trying to help them you know, work through different issues or prepare them for the next step and, and whatnot. And so that's great, man. I love hearing those stories. And I, I, I've known you for a very long time, too far for us to even recount at the moment. <laughs> We've known each other a long time, but it was it's really great to hear the part of the story that maybe I'd forgotten or had never heard. So thank you for sharing that with me. I feel very uh, honored that you shared that with me. And so thank you for that. So Tell me about the work that you're doing now. You're working at the uh, College College International. Is that what they're calling it? Well, yeah, we're kind of going through a, a, a kind of rebranding of the, the holding company. The holding company traditionally has been Dulwich College International. It has a, a, a partnership with Dulwich College London, which is a 400-year-old uh, British private school. And the Dulwich Colleges very much emulate that kind of British private school provision, albeit in an international context. So there's a school in Seoul, there's four colleges in China, and there's a college in Myanmar, which obviously in the current crises there is is actually online at the moment. And then we have a college here in Singapore. And those are largely, you know, in the private education sector, they're kind of premium types of educational provision. They're expensive, they're relatively conservative with a small c you know good quality education that leads to an ib diploma as a capstone you know in the space of disruption in education they're certainly not necessarily in that area but they do innovate and they do their within their own in their own quiet way they do create really interesting learning and and experiences for kids the high schools we have served chinese demographic for kids who've done the junkao and then and then want to go into an international program so it's a four-year program that takes them into an a-level uk a-level 
A-level programme and then they, they, many of them go off to the UK for university. De Hong International is a bicultural, bilingual Chinese national curriculum up to grade nine with a really interesting mix of expatriate and local staff and then they do an international program with the IB diploma as the capstone there and then I'm working on a new new project we call SE21 the S and the E SE21 is the postcode for Dulwich College London but SE21 in our context kind of means sustainability and entrepreneurship or um, any other S's and E's you want to throw at, at future of learning and 21 really referring to those 21st century skills so our founder and chair, Fraser White, tasked us, a group, small group of us, to, to try and come up with an innovative high school option. And that's led me on a journey for the last 12 months, which has been an incredibly enriching journey and a really, really interesting one. In that We started off by trying to create uh, a new curriculum provision for high school. We're not leveraging established big credentialing, as it were. So we're not using an IB diploma or a College Board AP or a British A-level. So we're not looking at summative high stakes as the end game. We're trying to devolve that. We're trying to build into it some of the competencies that have been identified by UNESCO, OECD, WEF, and other kind of global policy and think tank. And therefore, we've come up with a curriculum which we have if you like, the disciplinary learning we call transdisciplinary literacies because we think we take them further. We think of the high school as an accelerator rather than following the same path of a traditional pre-tertiary program. We kind of want to go a bit further with the university partnerships, pulling in some undergraduate content. So the transdisciplinary literacies is one area. And then a second area is the is what we call dynamic literacies. So that's a, another way of thinking through what sometimes are referred to as the soft skills or 21st century learning skills. And then, then we, we kind of glue those together with what we call interliteracy uh, skills, which are things like critical thinking, collaboration, creativity, and so forth. And then that led us to look at, well, if we were moving away from a high stakes summative environment, what could we do to solution around the credentialing? So what would the credentialing look like? So we started having conversations and we joined people like Mastery Transcript Consortium in the US who are doing quite interesting kind of expansive exploratory work with transcripts that move away from GPAs and, and a kind of number based way of evaluating students. We built around a concept of um, evidencing learning, we think of it as, rather than assessment. So in other words, what can students create to show evidence of different learning in different contexts? So that inevitably led us to not just MTC, but also looking at micro-credentialing and competency-based education, which is not a particularly new concept in the US particularly. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different groups working with concept-based education and micro-credentialing around competencies. Education Design Lab down in Florida, for example, doing some really good work. And then that led us into, well, if we had a we had an MTC transcript environment, but we also had a digital credentialing environment, what would we do in terms of recognition of this? And so we started having conversations with CIS. We started having conversations with NIAS. We started having conversations with some universities in the UK and in the US and in Europe. And that led us, because our initial solutioning was, what if we could get letters of intent or MOUs with universities to accept our graduates, which we've done, we've landed a few of those, but you're really picking away at the fringes when really what you want is something that can be recognised globally without having to go through 
a one-to-one conversation with every single university you want your students to have access to. So that's led us to latterly exploring micro-credentialing and, and digital solutions around using utilising blockchain for things like digital passports, digital wallets. So talking to people like Credly, there's a small company up in Canada called Convergence who've got a thing called Tribe ID, which is really interesting. They're working with Ontario and Nova Scotia ministries of education to do do something similar in the, in the public education space. But of course, many of these micro-credential companies, they will provide you the platform and the solutioning around badging, but they leave it to you to do the award. Now, of course, for universities, they want to see a stamp of quality assurance around that award and want to know that there's something more than it just being project-based learning, teacher-based assessment. They want, they want something else, which is, of course, ironic because much of that project-based, concept-based inquiry methodology, the universities and the research from universities suggests that there's more authentic learning there. But interestingly enough, as a pre-tertiary qualification, they're not willing to to recognise it. So that paradox being as it may, that's led us to having conversations in the last few weeks with people like Cambridge, with Pearson. And what I've been saying to them is, really, you guys... Post-pandemic, you're facing a world in which high-stakes summative credentialing might be threatened in some instances, like the UK, for example, phasing out GCSEs. That's a big hit on your business model. But what if, what if in disciplinary learning you could pivot away from summative high-stakes? So if you take a two-year curriculum, whether it's IB Diploma or whether it's GCSEs, if you look at the, like, take mathematics and all of the concepts that might be covered in a two-year maths course, Rather than putting all of that into a high-stakes summative exam regime at the end, what if you broke that down into small micro-credentialed competencies based around individual components of the concepts, so algebra, geometry, etc., and then lay over that data accumulation around how you're, trans, you're, you're building on those individual content blocks? Could you not create a model where you could validate micro-credentials which stack and become a certification at a period in time. That then allows for you to still pivot your business model, but still create revenue. But then also for students, allows for higher levels of personalization in terms of the learning trajectories and where you want to pick up a credential at what point in your journey in the high school model. And so we're having some initial exploratory conversations, let's say that, around could we take SE21 as a curriculum architecture, but then also create a credentialing ecosystem that's got quality assurance and becomes in and of itself a qualification. If we can maybe achieve some of that or all of it, then we become a disruptor, which I think potentially has got a lot of potential, not just for our own schools, but potentially for other schools to leverage that, that, that model. Kevin, there's a lot to unpack there. I got a couple of things I, I want to say. First off, thank you for that. That was a really concise explanation. And I would say, number one, I'm all about personalized learning pathways. So I think that anything we can do, I can envision the stacking that you're talking about. I can envision seeing, okay, these kids knock out the ones they're comfortable with, and then they have more time to work on the ones that they need more help with or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And those concepts are actually interchangeable. It's almost like when they went to interchangeable parts on cars, right? So you know, yeah. things off. Yeah. It also allows, it allows for not just breadth, but it allows for depth. So you could build, you could build content components in there. So if a kid really does get switched on by a particular 
area within mathematics, they could really drill down in that and collect credentialing around that and have it recognized. And I, you know, and I'm listening to your your discussion of this, and I know that you guys are uh, doing kind of your own pathway, but I hear a lot of what you're saying because of the IBCP that I'm working in yeah. has a lot of those same kind of, the spirit is similar. <laughs> you know, and I know, Jason, I think, and having been a, you know, an ex-member of IB, I think I can speak with some level of conviction and, and knowledge. Uh, I think the IBCP is the most in innovative thing the IB's cooked up in the last 20 years. And uh, they almost don't realize how good it could be. I mean, I, I often thought, wouldn't it have been lovely if the IBCP had just become another path in the DP and it was just one credential and you could just choose different pathways? Missed opportunity. <laughs> Sounds like Ollie, uh, the new DG. Ollie might do it. You never know. He might. He might see that. See the need for that. So if he's listening, let's have that conversation. <laughs> I completely agree with you. I think that the the way the CP works. The thing is, though, Kevin. To me, even the CP is not new in the sense that I grew up in a system in the U.S. Yeah. A little later than you did, but not much, where I could get a quote unquote vocational high school diploma and an academic high yeah. school diploma. Yeah. And it allowed me, I could actually, I had enough room in my schedule to do both. I did the minimum I had to for my academic, but the vocational is where I really enjoyed using my hands and doing all these things that were interesting, right? And so I think that we go back to that idea that kids have an option and parents are involved with this this personalization of learning and it shouldn't start at high school. It should start in kindergarten. You know, it should start yes. way down. What if we, if we make, I guess you could say accommodations for students who have special needs or students who are gifted, why aren't we also creating personalized learning for the rest of the students? Right. So yeah. I think that's great, Kevin, what you're doing sounds fun. I'm really energized by listening to <laughs> all that you've been going through. It shouts out one of the big challenges in one of the big elephants in the room in education, Jason, which is, I think, really, in terms of structure, vocational learning has been far ahead of the curve in terms of because of its focus on application, whereas academia is never really necessarily focused first and foremost on application. It's more around the abstract and the concept. Both are hugely important. But I think what happened with vocational, because it ended up as a, as a non-negotiable front of house, you had to focus on the application. It meant that it created more flexible pathways. Whereas I think the academy, because you were creating students going through uh, a school environment to create academics for the next generation and going through university in the same sort of, in that same pathway, it tended to narrow the skills and the applicability of skills so that's why we're in a we're, we're in this state now where on the one hand employers are saying many university graduates don't necessarily have the skills we need to get them going as quickly and as efficiently as we could but we've also created in certain particularly in anglo-saxon culture i don't think the germans the swiss have ever gone down this path quite so much and many of the european countries i'd say the dutch as well but we in the Anglo-Saxon world have created this two-tier system where academic credentialing is viewed as a higher class of credential as opposed to vocational training. And of course, oftentimes, whenever you have the conversation about IB diploma and IBCP, you get that jaundiced perspective around, ah, oh, one's vocational, one's academic. Whereas, of course, 
it's about learning and the learning far more in a really well-established and developed IBCP, it's just as intellectually challenging as an IB diploma. And it's actually got the breadth that maybe many of the diplomas in the way that they play out in some of the more conservative environments doesn't have. And, and, and I think that that's, that's the elephant in the room. The vocational and the, the academic, they, they should not be seen as different. And as I said, in many European countries, they've, they've often had a you know, in Germany, for example, if you're a job, if you're a doctor or an engineer, you're not somehow seen as different. One being better than the other within the social fabric. So the social engineering bit is also something that interests me a lot around what kind of learning environment we create. Agreed, Kevin. Yeah, I think that you and I are on the same wavelength when it comes to to this completely. So when we get back to SE21, what kind of student do you envision sort of taking part in this, at least in the beginning, in the early stages? What kind of student do you think you would attract? Yeah, that's a good question. We, we created, I think, four profiles in some of the university recognition packs that we created to try and give a taste of what we see these graduates becoming. And I guess it's, by and large, it's it's dictated really by, and I know educators don't like talking about it in these terms, but it's we are in private education and I don't really have a problem with saying customer base, but fundamentally the parents who are paying the fees, really, they still want tertiary open as a pathway, right? So even though we might be saying the educational experience that they would be having through SE21 might mean the students themselves get to the end of it and go, you know what, I don't know that I want to go to university. I might just go and look for some for some venture capital and, and start something that I've, I've already played with in SE21 and I want to see where I can go with it. And of course, having graduates that want to do that is fantastic, but we're not under any illusions that by and large, I think a lion's share of our kids will probably still go into tertiary. However, we do think they might challenge the tertiary status quo in that they want to select tertiary courses that have a very similar look and feel to an SE21 experience. So therefore, if you think about Waterloo uh, in Canada or Olin College and uh, maybe Northwestern, Northeastern in the US, where they've, they've got very strong internship programs and kind of also interestingly, you know, costing models where you can offset some of the ridiculous costs around tertiary by doing internships and getting leverage and, and maybe scholarships and, and earn, a, earn a money, you know, earn a wage like some of the ones in, in Waterloo and looking at some of those opportunities. So, yeah, it's still largely tertiary, I think. But as I said, we want to pull in some of the undergraduate content because of, obviously I think because we're getting rid of summative and I think Really, I would say if you look at a four year summative, you know, a high school program that's geared towards doing APs or IV diploma, you spend a lot of your curriculum time or I think too much of your curriculum time actually teaching the kids how to take the tests. Now, if you remove a lot of that, you now, I would say, create maybe another 10 or 15 percent of curriculum time where you could be pulling in more content and skills development and therefore a bit like the American system where where you have dual enrollment bringing in some of that undergraduate content um, and skills development into a high school environment because I think our schools we're looking at having an admissions environment which really is not about academic performance so we're looking at different data points in the admissions process from running kind of road test boot camps 
to psychometric and cognitive reflective evaluations to interviews with the students, not as a selection process for us, but more as a selection process for students to say, do you feel that what we're offering would give you the opportunity to thrive as a student? Because we don't want you to come and join us if you feel it's something that's going to challenge you in terms of the amount of autonomy and agency that you would have as a learner. Because, you know, it's horses for courses. I think some some students like the security of having a, a set nine to four timetable and they know where they're going, lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, lesson four. And, and our, our approach would probably break that up a fair bit. I agree, Kevin. I think you're looking for that that sweet spot, <laughs> you know, where we can still gather enough steam to get, you know, a really, really great cohort of students, but at the same time having highly specialized, highly personalized learning opportunities and engagements. That sounds great, Kevin. So do you guys have an idea of when something like this is going to actually come to fruition? Yeah, we're, we're looking at maybe trying to open our first school, maybe August 2023, We're looking at a number of locations globally. We're also in conversation with some other organizations. One of them's a really interesting concept in that they're they're looking at creating really interactive, I suppose in an Asian context, you call them enrichment environments. So those those environments where kids go and, and do some reinforcement work or they go and do some, you know, they might do coding or they might do robotics or other enrichment activities to add to their portfolio, as it were. But they might just do revisiting of some of their, their academics as well. But they're trying to create, they want to create spaces through repurposing commercial real estate. They want to create spaces that are interactive. So they've got really what they call four-dimensional library environments. They've got ropes courses. They've got climbing walls. They've got places where kids actually just want to hang out, not just, you know, enrichment slavery program. It's more that it's, they're places that are learning hubs And so we're even exploring what if we co-shared some of these spaces. We used it for part of the day. They used it for part of the day. Some of their classes could blend into stuff that we offer to our high school students and and vice versa with some of the boot camps that we might run. That for me is a really exciting opportunity, given that where we are in the world and the fact that, frankly, you know, a lot of commercial real estate, particularly retail, is, is facing some challenging times, given the the pandemic and the and the shift to online shopping that this could be a way of repurposing some of that commercial retail real estate in downtown environments that's vibrant and human and involves people and it really creates a really fantastic educational hub that doesn't just service a school doesn't just service enrichment it could even be adult education you know, there's a lot you could do with that and i think that's a really exciting conversation that we're having at the moment yeah that sounds really really exciting and i love to hear you I, we could talk all day about this but i want to ask you one thing kevin and that is this is all awesome and really really great to hear what kind of educator would you look at having <laughs> i wondered when that question was going to come up. for us we've, we've done some initial around the learning you know we, we started with se21 you know i've talked with other colleagues talked with conrad hughes over at isg he's done some fantastic work with their universal learning program the work with unesco they've got their seven competencies I think Conrad and, and that team over there have come at it from a very much a conceptual theoretical background. What what makes good authentic learning and how do you construct from that? I think we, we've kind of got to a similar space, but we came at it from a different direction. So we looked at the learner experience 
So we looked at it from what does the learner user experience look like and what might the look and feel be around that? And then as we built the educational architecture, we very quickly, of course, got to, well, what does the profile need to look like for the educator in this environment? And we very quickly moved beyond, you know, I think language is language is hugely important. It's a very powerful thing. It carries implicit and explicit baggage. And so we very quickly moved beyond the term teacher. We very quickly gravitated towards things like educator, things like learning designer, things like life coach, things like guidance, counselling and mentoring. And I suppose it's a composite of all of those things is what we want in the faculty for this school. So that very quickly took us to, well, what would an accelerated professional learning journey need to look like for people who'd worked in, let's say, more more traditional educational environments to be able to feel comfortable if we're asking them to be part disciplinary expert, part life coach, part counsellor, part mentor, part project designer and project lead. You know, what, what, are the, what skills do they need to feel comfortable? Because just as we want to try and create a school in which students feel they will thrive, we, we have to have the same thing for the educators. So because of the high levels of agency and autonomy we want for both students and the, and the educational adults working in this environment, it's important that we, we give them the tools to feel comfortable. So, I mean, I suppose that's the, the profile for me is, yeah, part educator, part life coach, part counsellor and guidance. It sounds like this person we described at the beginning, someone who's come to education maybe later in the game, who's got some life experience, uh, maybe some experience in social entrepreneurship or journeyman or or mentoring type experience. It's definitely that, Jason. It's probably both. I mean, it's probably people who are, you know, died in the wall educators. They've been through the institution and they, they know they've got a lot to give and expertise within the academic sphere. And they want to do other things as well, just as people in the industry who feel they want to pivot and look into education and they've got a lot of skills and building a kind of very fertile environment where those kinds of adults can work together and learn from one another, I think would be really, really exciting. Kevin, I'm excited. Where do I sign up, man? Yes. (laughs) Sounds good. I'll make sure that we can keep the updates rolling. And so, Kevin, I have a quick question to ask everybody, and that is what book should everyone stop right now and read? Well, now, there's an interesting one. At the moment, I'm just trying to find the title again. At the moment, I'm thumbing through. Well, I I don't know if I can give you one. (laughs) I don't think I can. So someone I really enjoyed reading, which is Charles Fidel and the guys at the Centre for Curriculum Redesign, Four-Dimensional Learning, Four-Dimensional Curriculum. That's a really interesting book. They've done another one around IA, which came out last year. So Charles Fidel and and a couple of other people he worked with on that. I'm reading um, Hemant Tanjay's unscaled at the moment so how ai and a new generation of upstarts are creating the economy of the future the reason i'm interested in it is just around the term unscaled so the premise in that book is really the 20th century through the innovation of electricity became the century of scaling so you went for economies of scale and i think his provocation is to say well now with AI and machine learning, we have the potential to differentiate, personalize and unscale in lots of different areas of human, human life. And I'm looking at that as a lens through which to look at how do we unscale education? 
So I'm kind of, that's where I'm at at the moment. Love it. That's awesome, Kevin. And I'll make sure to have those books. I have a good read shelf just for my guests that have promoted books or told us some recommended some books. And so I'll make sure those are up there for when the episode airs. And so Kevin, I appreciate that, man. And so if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Probably find me on LinkedIn. That's I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a reflection of my generation in that I'm pretty analog. So I am on Twitter, but I, I, I guess I'm a lurker on Twitter more than any, doing anything active. I'm far too verbose to put anything in, you know, in 60 characters or whatever. I tend to use LinkedIn a lot. So connect with me through LinkedIn or please email me at kevin.house at indulwich.com. Yeah, but through LinkedIn, you can follow me. So that's probably the easiest way. Yeah, your LinkedIn profile is probably more exciting than your email address, but we can certainly so. make both available for, for people to have a look yes. at. So yeah. Maybe a little bit easier. But Kevin, thank you so much. And so, listen, Kevin, this has been great. I can literally talk to you all day about this, but I know that you are, are ending your day as well. And so I really do appreciate you taking time to talk to me. And I would love to have you back on once this SE21 is up and rolling and you guys have a, a site and, and whatnot. And so I would love to extend that invitation invitation for when that happens absolutely that'd be fantastic jason love to share it love to get people to the party and i think one of the things is for all of us it's about as i i say to people with what we're trying to do i'm not trying to be a revolutionary i'm trying to create more diversity and more inclusion more access to to recognize neurological diversity everybody learns differently and we need to recognize that thanks kevin i appreciate it I hope you enjoyed that episode of DesignCast. I'm Jason, your host, and I produced and created this podcast. If you have any input, I would love to hear from you. And I look forward to seeing you again really soon. Jason here from DesignCast, and I am just so pleased that you're here listening to DesignCast. I really appreciate all the feedback everyone's been giving me. It's been so fantastic to hear it, and it just really inspires me to continue going. Of course, making this week on week is difficult. If you feel so inclined, of course, there is no pressure. I would love it if you would take part in helping to support this podcast. And so I'm using a website called Buy Me a Coffee, and there are a couple different ways you can give. One is you can give a one-time gift, and then also there are monthly gifts that you can give. And by doing that, you will receive some services from me. Number one, you'll be part of Signcast support family. Also, there are different levels within that. So head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash designcast, and you can find out more about the different ways you can support me.